There's been a record rise in the number of jobless people in Britain, up to nearly 2.4 million. Figures for the three months to May show a jump of 280,000. That's the biggest quarterly increase since records began nearly 40 years ago. Life can sometimes be hard. Losing our job, being the victim of an assault or suffering the breakdown of a relationship are all adverse events that can have a negative impact on our health and well-being. But what determines how well we cope? The answer lies in our levels of cognitive resilience, which is affected by where we come from and also who we are. Dr Samantha Murphy is a lecturer in health studies at The Open University. So it might well be people are just generally more resilient than other people. But often it's social support. Their social networks help them be resilient. The way they look at life. But also their class. You know, what resources have they got around them? Have they got finance that can help them cope well? If you're made homeless, but you come from a moneyed background and they can give you a home temporarily while you sort yourself out, that helps you be resilient too. Today in Britain, austerity measures mean we're having to find ideas that can explain how people will be more resilient. Recently, the government asked the think tank, the New Economics Foundation, to come up with a simple set of actions. The result was their five ways to well-being. Connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give. Dear Belle, Fifteen months ago, at the age of 24, my youngest brother died very suddenly in a car accident. The whole family is devastated. Belle Mooney's been helping people struggling with problems for the last eight years, first as an advice columnist for the Times newspaper and now for the Daily Mail. I asked what she makes of the official guidelines. In terms of the first one, connection, of course... It's essential. It's at the root of everything. It's at the root of all well-being. To love and be loved, if you like. I've sometimes said to people, just get out there and talk to people any way you can. I think you can learn that. And you, I tell people, you know, you've got to ask people questions about themselves because people are very selfish and very self-absorbed. But if they actually learn to say, well, how are you, what do you do, how basic is that? but it is at the root of our interpersonal relationships, all of them. Let's begin by paying attention to your breathing. Someone who's putting the five ways to use in her work is Dr Sarah Booth, a palliative care consultant at Addenbrooke's Hospital. Her initial trials using mindfulness techniques with patients showed a reduction in their anxiety levels after just six weeks. More and more data showed that those people who became depressed had worse medical outcomes. So if you had heart failure, you were going to do worse if you became depressed. And rather than let people become depressed and then treat it, was there a way of stopping that happening? Now, as a result of that work, she's produced a glossy well-being diary full of uplifting quotes and beautiful works of art, which she's hoping to give out to patients. So, Albert Camus, in the midst of winter, I found within me there was an invincible summer and then there's a blank page for you to do what you like with at one point we encourage you to draw because a lot of people haven't done something like drawing since their childhood it asks you to focus on one of the five ways each day to listen to a meditation cd and plan something enjoyable to do also crucially to write down a good thing that's happened to you each and every day 
and it's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, and what kind of things did yeah, people write? Interesting. Uh, I saw my daughter, you know, or I saw a friend I hadn't seen for ages. So a lot of it was about people. They're describing an event that's already happened. Why is it beneficial for them to remember something that's already passed? Well, we have a tendency to remember the bad things over the good, and which distorts, I mean, it's a distortion. And if we focus on those good things, and we do this, the whole thing, we repeat it day in, day out, I think it's a gradual accumulation of good. It might be that people's relationships change, they might be enhanced, their views of themselves might change, and there could be changes in their life philosophy. Post-traumatic growth is the term psychologists use to describe the positive change some people experience after a trauma. Dr Samantha Murphy again. How common is it? Well, the suggestions it could be somewhere between 30 to 70% of people experience some form of post-traumatic growth after an adverse event. Andy Grant is one of those people. An Iraq and Afghanistan veteran and Royal Marine commander of six and a half years, he's an elite-level athlete with ambitions to one day win an Olympic medal. But at the age of 23, he had to make a terrible decision to get his leg amputated. We went out about half five in the morning. It was pitch black. You could barely see your hand in front of your face. One of my best friends, Ian, was leading the patrol. And as he jumped over an irrigation ditch, he'd obviously hit this wire, initiating two bombs that went off in front of my face. You know, I, I knew straight away I'd been blown up and just started shouting and screaming. And then next thing I remember, I woke up two weeks later in Birmingham Hospital where my dad sat next to me. You know, it was the certain challenges of being able to walk again that got me through the rehab. And then obviously once I could walk again, it was OK, right, let's see how, how far I can run. Then it was OK, let's do a 10K race. Then it was let's do a half marathon. And that's how I try and live my life now. You know, my inner strength grows every time I, I overcome one challenge. Today, Andy regularly completes half marathons and long-distance cycle rides raising money for Help for Heroes, the charity that's offered so much support to him and his family. Making use of the five ways to well-being were strategies Andy used in his recovery, but they came to him naturally. The question is, if they don't, can they be learnt? And the evidence seems to suggest, with the right help and support, they can be. I wrote... I discovered after initial grief and subsequent bitterness and rage that I do not believe in original sin. Gosh, it makes me cry. I'm going to have to control myself here, OK? In November 1975, Belle Mooney suffered a devastating loss. Her second son, Tom, was still born at full term. I was just knocked out. I didn't even know he was born dead. I was just slugged unconscious. The baby was taken away in a kind of green thing. My husband didn't even see him. And that was it. That's it. And that was normal in the 70s. She wrote a letter to a friend in Australia describing what had happened. As we shared sorrow, my husband consoled me by saying that his own comfort lay in the conviction that his baby died pure. He was conceived and existed and died. It was simply a speeding up of the process we all experience without the pain, without the regrets, without the hurting of other people, without the sickening consciousness of universal misery, without the disappointments of age. Also, of course, without the moments of joy 
but then he was wanted, cherished, loved. Later, she turned the letter into an article. It appeared in The Guardian on January the 2nd, 1976, and the response was dramatic. I have sacks and sacks of letters, which I still have all these years later. And uh, women who had just had maybe stillbirth perhaps 20 or 30 years earlier, never been able to talk about it. And I just discovered this whole stratum of sorrow, unacknowledged, unspoken sorrow, because a stillborn baby was is treated like a miscarriage. Miscarriage is a very sad thing to happen. But to give birth to a dead baby is something which kind of calls into question a lot of the things we believe. We think birth is about life. In this case, birth is about death. And so I think that I wanted to explore, if you like, that terrible philosophical contradiction. And in a sense, the rest of my life, I have still been doing it. I don't think that I would have gone on to write about other personal issues, even before becoming an advice columnist, if my life hadn't been stopped by that extraordinary experience. Bell's experience had far-reaching effects. The article she wrote led to the foundation of the Stillbirth Society, later to be known as SANS, and directly inspired a shift in the awareness of how to treat stillbirth. Dr Samantha Murphy again. Now parents are offered time to spend with their baby, and that could be over a few hours or maybe even a couple of days. If they want, they can take the baby home. They can hold, dress, bathe the baby. And I think that's really important because it's all tied up in this identity of the baby. You know, you don't feel like a parent if your baby has died. But if you can do a few acts of parenting, if that is what you want to do afterwards, then I think that helps solidify the reality of the experience for parents. They've actually got a tangible baby in front of them, even though they will only know that baby for a few hours. Today, there are about 90 SANS groups across Britain, all of them run on a voluntary basis. Bereaved parents can get involved in a number of different ways, either fundraising for hospitals or acting as befrienders. But one thing that comes up again and again is the idea of giving back. So, for example, there was one woman who was left waiting for a long time in accident and emergency, and she should have been seen far quicker. So afterwards, she went back to the hospital to say, I want to know that that's not going to happen to anybody else. Research shows we get real psychological benefit from giving. Individuals who report a greater interest in helping others are more likely to rate themselves as happy. Dr Sarah Booth again. There's so much evidence that patients, even those with really serious illness, like to participate in research because they feel they're helping someone else. It's not going to help them, but it's going to help someone else. And that's what a lot of they, Because actually a lot of the process of treating people can be infantilising, you know. I mean, it shouldn't be like that, but sometimes that's how it can be experienced. So to have something where you're making a positive contribution and taking a lead is good for your psychological health. And people volunteer for all sorts of reasons, but that's one of them. The Open University. For more information, go to www.open.edu forward slash iTunes U.